In the early 1950s, something huge was stirring up in the science community. If the genetic discoveries made in the early 1900s represented a scientific spark, you could say that the 40s and 50s were a raging fire. The race to discover the molecular structure of DNA was nearing the finish line with many competitors. People like Linus Pauling, Maurice Watkins, James Watson, Francis Crick were all battling for what they knew the prize would be, a Nobel Prize. Other prizes included your name in future history in science books, and eternal praise as titans in the science field. The stakes were high. A new age in the scientific community would be created. Instead of carrying out new scientific studies and experiments in the lab, Watson and Crick would use existing pieces of data, bringing them together to form the accurate structure of DNA that we know today. The double helix. One of the most crucial clues to helping them understand the structure came from a chemist working in the lab at King's College in London. That chemist was an expert in using the powerful technique for determining the structure of molecules known as X-ray crystallography. That chemist would photograph the crystallized form of DNA by exposing it to X-rays, which gave clues about the molecule's structure. If you know anything about Watson Crick, you know that they are a little bit controversial, mostly on how they obtained the information and not crediting this particular chemist. At least not until several years later. James Watson and Francis Crick would, and I quote, borrow the notes and famous photograph of that particular chemist, using her crucial work without her knowledge to construct the first 3D model of the DNA structure. Years later, they would, and I quote, earn the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1962 along Maurice Wilkins. That chemist was a woman, and her name was Rosalind Franklin. Watson would later suggest that Rosalind Franklin would have earned the Nobel Prize in Chemistry if she was still alive at the time. Franklin would later die of ovarian cancer in 1958, never truly knowing that her own work was used without her consent. And unfortunately, the Nobel Prize Committee generally did not make posthumous nominations, so she would never earn that award. However, that didn't stop her from earning worldwide recognition Massive respect and being a voice in the history of sexism towards women in the workplace. Nothing ever stopped her from working hard. And to this day, she stands as an inspiration to women in STEM. The unsung hero of DNA, her name is Rosalind Franklin. And that is the Woman of the Week. Hello there, you rad-tastic bunches of oats. It's me, your host, William Argetta. To all you science nerds out there, this one's a big one. You know who it is, I hope. So keep those lab coats close and nitrile gloves on all snug, because we're about to get into this wet lab. To all those who don't know her, she's super dope. And I hope you enjoy this episode of this super scientist. Let's begin. Rosalind Franklin, or Rosalind Franklin, was born into an affluent and influential Jewish family on July 25, 1920, in Notting Hill, London, England, the second of five children. Franklin's father, Ellis, who bore the same last name, was a partner at Keeser's Bank, one of the family's major businesses. Her whole family was active in community service and charity, and she displayed exceptional intelligence from early childhood. She attended St. Paul's School for Girls, which emphasized preparing its graduates for careers, not just marriage. Ha! 
And there, she displayed exceptional math and science skills and had a pretty easy time learning foreign languages. She was excellent in French, pretty damn good with Italian, and eh, passable with German. Das tut mir leid. She was also pretty bad with music. She was given the title of almost singing in tune by her music teacher. The Franklin family vacations were often walking and hiking tours, and hiking became one of Rosalind's lifelong passions, as did foreign travel. They were walkers and travelers, it seems. And at age 15, this woman knew what she wanted to be. She wanted to be a scientist. Her mother would note that she knew this all along, of course. Rather than stay an extra year for more college preparation, she left St. Paul's in 1938 to enter Newnham College, one of two women's colleges at Cambridge University, where she would study physical chemistry. Quoting Walter White from Breaking Bad, Technically, chemistry is the study of matter, but I prefer to see it as the study of change. Her father was not opposed to her deciding to go into the science field. Good job, Dad. However, there are some accounts that he did want her to go to the more traditional routes at first. Now, imagine being an undergraduate during World War II. Being a woman on top of that. Many instructors had to be pulled for war work. Some of the faculty from other countries had to be detained as aliens, such as Max Peretz, who would also win the Nobel Prize in 1962. And the biochemistry department was almost entirely run by Germans. Two words. Oh no. However, Cambridge also took in a lot of refugees. One of which was a French scientist, Adrian Whale, who was a student of Mary Curry's, who became a mentor and a friend to Franklin. Franklin's French friendship would become quite the plug in the future, but we will get to that shortly. In 1941, Franklin received her bachelor's, and since the war was still in full effect, she had to decide whether to be drafted for more traditional war work or pursue a PhD-orientated job that was relevant to the war efforts. She decided to go with the latter, option B, which dropped her in the newly established British Coal Utilization Research Association. My goodness. All able-bodied citizens had to contribute to the war efforts, and with this organization, she would research the production, distribution, and use of coal and its derivatives. Coal is important not just for fuel purposes, but also to be used for tools, such as gas masks, using special charcoal filters. Now, carbon chemistry was a pretty well-versed science by the time, but there were still so many questions with all the new technology coming around during the war. So her job was mostly to look at the holes in coal. Now, you probably think that's pretty boring, but... I guess it was pretty important at the time. Some of the work she did was that it was known that coals contained many fine pores. But why did some types of pores prove to be more permeable to water, solvents, or gases than others? So Franklin carried out a series of original experiments that provided the answers. She tested a variety of coals from the British Isles, grinding them to fine powders, then measuring their densities. Franklin was the first to identify and measure these microstructures, and this fundamental work made it possible to classify coals and predict their performance to a higher degree of accuracy. Her four years of research at the BCURA yielded a doctoral thesis, and then she received her PhD from Cambridge in 1945, completing five scientific papers, three of which she was the sole author. Although she found the work at the BCURA satisfying, 
Franklin was looking for something different after the war. Writing to French scientist and her friend Adrian Weil, with whom she had studied at Newham College, she wrote to him, If ever you hear of anybody anxious for the services of a physical chemist who knows very little physical chemistry, but quite a lot about the holes and coals, please let me know. And at a carbon research conference in London in the fall of 1946, Whale introduced Franklin to Marcel Mathieu, who headed the French government agency that supported much of the scientific research done in France. Mathieu was impressed, and with such a good impression, she was founded a post with Jacques Mering at a laboratory in Paris. With Mering, she learned and mastered the techniques of X-ray crystallography and its applications to substances more complex than simple mineral or metal crystals. Each photo requires hundreds of calculations, which had to be done by hand because computer technology just wasn't there yet. The X-ray equipment also was challenging, frequently overheating and breaking down during log exposures. Some of these exposures that Franklin did took a hundred hours or even more. So not only were they researchers, they often had to design, modify, and repair their own equipment. Franklin became very skilled with crystallographic technique, though she always maintained that she was a chemist, not a crystallographer. After her death, J.D. Bernal, who himself was a pioneer in the field, would note that Franklin took some of the most beautiful X-ray diffraction photos ever done. She also made many improvements in X-ray diffraction methods, improvements such as imaging large complex molecules and simplifying the accompanying mathematical techniques. She enjoyed the demanding research and also loved the camaraderie of the laboratory staff. In 1950, she was awarded a three-year Turner and Newall Research Fellowship to work at King's College, starting in January 1951. When she arrived at King's College, she worked with Randall Rader, who was the inventor of radar technology, so she's up there with the big shots now. Franklin's fellowship called her to work on X-ray diffraction studies of proteins and solutions. However, they've shifted their research priorities after Maurice Wilkins. Remember that guy? Well, he was the assistant director of Randall's lab, and he began working with an unusually pure sample of DNA obtained from Rudolf Singner. Wilkins believed that Franklin's expertise would be well suited for researching the pure sample. Randall agreed and shifted her work from mere proteins to Big Papa Daddy DNA. So Randall assigned the work to her and a graduate student named Raymond Gosling who would be under her supervision. Wilkins himself was very interested and wanted to be heavily involved, but Franklin was under the impression that it was her work alone. Randall didn't address these omissions, so there were misunderstandings between the two as they worked loosely together. She regarded it as interference when he wanted to work with her and Wilkins had a more restrained personality while Franklin was direct, honest, and unafraid of arguments. She often mentioned that she missed her colleagues in France, since they would often enjoy a good row, as she puts it. So she was kind of intimidating to people like dainty men. She missed France, as she often wrote. Her work at King's College was frustrating to her, while France had a more egalitarian atmosphere that she thoroughly enjoyed. She often kept her distance from the team in London. As a result, Francis and Wilkins were never really friends. Studying DNA structure with X-ray diffraction, Franklin and her student Raymond Gosling struck something spectacular. They took a picture of DNA and discovered that there were two forms of it, a dry A form and a wet B form. Now this photograph is called Photograph 51, which became famous as it was utilized in identifying the structure of DNA. 
This photograph took over 100 hours of X-ray exposure from a machine that Franklin herself had tuned. Franklin's notes show that she thought the helix shape was possible, but wouldn't theorize it in advance. To her, evidence mattered greatly. Despite her cautious and reserved behavior of her work, Maurice Wilkins would one day change the course of the DNA race. Without her knowledge, he would take her notes and the photograph that she and Gosling created. It is said that when Wilkins showed the photograph to Watson Crick, his jaw dropped and pulse began to race. He knew as well as Rosalind Franklin did that how valuable this photograph really was. Watson and Crick would use this photograph as the basis for their first famous model of DNA. And when they published their findings on March 7, 1953, they took most of the credit for the findings. The model in The Nature magazine had a footnote that they were stimulated by general knowledge of both Franklin and Wilkins' unpublished work, even though that their work was deeply rooted in Franklin's photos and findings. It's almost like getting an answer key to an exam, except some of the work was scrambled. So all the work they had to do was just piece the puzzle together, quite literally, ignoring the hundreds of hours of photographs and thousands of mathematical calculations or the frustrations of overheating machines and the dangerous exposure to X-ray radiation. Because none of that is that hardcore anyways, right? Franklin never knew that they had used her work extensively, and she, she died with this. But she was not one to complain. She was supportive of Watson and Crick's discovery, and although she had the discovery in her notes months before Watson and Crick started working on it, she didn't stop research in general. She was the queen of research. Franklin left King's College in March 1953 and moved into working for Burbeck College. There, she would study the structure of viruses and the structure of RNA. I think she was just kind of sick of the king. Randall only let her leave on the condition that she does not work on DNA, probably because he knew that she would discover more great things about it and be able to take all the credit. She continued to do some work on coal and published 17 papers on viruses. In fact, her group laid the foundations for structural virology. In this college, too, it had a much more egalitarian atmosphere, so she was having way more fun here. In 1954, she visited the United States for the first time. She researched in Washington University, UC Berkeley, and Caltech. She made a lot more friends and became the top of her field in coal and virology. I could see why they didn't want her to work on DNA anymore. She would have destroyed the competition. During her trips, however, she began to experience sharp abdominal pains and swellings. When she returned to England to her physician, the physician suspected that she had ovarian cancer, and she would have multiple surgeries for this, but in the end, cancer kept advancing and took her life on April 16, 1958. In the obituaries, J.D. Bernal praised her highly, and I quote him, As a scientist, Miss Franklin was distinguished by extreme clarity and perfection in everything she undertook. He concluded that she was the perfect example of what devotion to research is. She was only 37 years old. Imagine what else she could have done. Some of the people she collabed with, like Aaron Klug and John Finch, published the polio virus structure the following year, dedicating the paper to her memory. And in 1982, Aaron Klug would win the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. It is unfortunate that she did not receive the full credit for her contributions but it is important that she is recognized for her life work and research on the contributions that she brought to society. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Our quote today comes from Audrey Gibson in Stockton, California. As long as women consent to be unjustly governed, they will be. But directly, women say, we withhold our consent. 
We will not be governed any longer as long as government is unjust. Hey, thanks for listening. For contact information, go to womanoftheweekofficial at gmail.com or follow our new Instagram page, Women of the Week Podcast. You're looking for the purple colored logo. Check it out. Send me memes or suggestions, whatever you want, as long as it's appropriate. Don't scar my brain tissue with anything. Goodbye. Thank you.